And you know something else? It's going to take money. That's why my budget increases funding for our K-12 classrooms this year by $278 million. Hello and welcome to a post-Missouri State of the State edition of the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio and The Beacon. Joining me in St. Louis is... Jason Rosenbaum. And joining us from Jefferson City... Joe Manis. And Marshall Griffin. Guys, thanks for joining us. Before we introduced ourselves, we had Governor Jay Nixon talking a little bit about um, increased funding for education. Joe and Marshall, you were covering it last night. So what was the big story out of the state of the state? Well, again, this reminds me of the George Harrison song. It's going to take money. It's going to take plenty of money. That song has got my mind set on you. It's from the 1980s, by the way. Correct. But the governor and I are of the same generation, so I'm sure he remembers it. And it is a cover version. (laughs) Jason did his research for this. Yes. And uh, but the point is, is that the governor's proposed budget for the coming fiscal year, which begins July 1st, is about 400 close to 430 million above the current spending level and all of that and more would be used to uh, fund about 490 million in increased spending that he's proposing for education from all levels that's preschool through college the bulk of it though would be for um, k through 12 the 278 million that he referred to in that clip is for his proposed increase in the foundation formula, which is the basic school aid program that most school districts get their money out of. But that's still only half of what would be needed to fully fund the foundation formula. And his budget office says that they're hoping, if the good times continue, that they can fully fund by next year. But in the meantime, House Speaker Tim Jones feels that money is not the answer. And so he says that while they're interested in looking what the governor's proposing, he's sounding like the House is going to try to put the brakes on some of that spending for education. Marshall and Joe, one of the things that I was kind of surprised about, but not necessarily surprised about because it's a complex issue, is that the governor really didn't talk very much about the transfer issue that's been transfixing St. Louis and Kansas City. It got one sentence. It got one sentence. And I thought it, I understand maybe the rationale that, you know, maybe this is going to be a legislative issue and not necessarily from the top down. But did either of you find it peculiar that an issue that is basically captivating a third of the state's population got one sentence in this speech? I should say maybe I I think it should be peculiar, but it's not really. I, I think the governor has the governor has bigger fish to fry and uh, is my opinion and trying to interpret uh, his mind and where he's going with this because you're a mind reader yeah well of course (laughs) um but um to me he wants to keep the focus on uh, increasing education spending and making his case for medicaid expansion this this particular address uh to me has more meat in it than some of his addresses uh during his first term in office I think one of the things about the transfer situation that that you brought up, Jason, was that on the education issue, you know, this transfer situation is pretty thorny. There are a lot of of opposing viewpoints on it. So he's kind of leaving it up to the General Assembly on what they want to do with it. But he's doing what is 
of course, a pretty popular thing which for education, which is, well, let's just increase a lot of yeah, the money. Kind of and what he's I kind of thinking. staying out of the controversial areas. It, it kind of seemed like optics. Right. You know, it, it, it's a lot more uh, broadly acceptable to propose more money for more school districts. It's something that, as a message, makes more people happy. But, you know, talking or focusing on and, you know, improving struggling school districts are trying to prevent school districts from not going bankrupt or giving students who are in these struggling school districts a chance to get a good education, maybe that's not an issue that's going to make everybody as happy per, per chance. Well, there's there's two things here. One, school spending is popular even with Republicans, especially rural Republicans, because in most of the rural districts, the school districts and the hospitals are the largest employers and are the very major pillars of those communities. So he, the governor found this out during the budget fight, I mean the tax cut fight this summer, was that by enlisting the support of the school districts in his battle against the tax cuts, they galvanized and managed to peel off enough Republicans so that the override didn't happen. So I can see some of this playing out again because in some ways what he's doing by laying out his big education spending is what he's telling the public is that the legislature's choice is, is to either beef up money for education or give money back to uh, corporations and maybe some individuals. So he's sort of pitting tax cuts against education. And in fact, a couple places in his speech, he was pretty explicit about it. And Joe, we actually have a soundbite of him uh, talking a little bit about the tax cut and education. I will not support anything that takes money out of our classrooms. As we saw last summer, in community after community, in all corners of our state, parents, teachers, administrators, school board members, business leaders, and concerned citizens spoke out with one united voice. And that was kind of... a. Pretty similar to a lot of the rhetoric that we heard last summer against um, HB 253, the income tax cut bill. And there were a lot, there was a lot of crossover between his state of the state and some of his rhetoric against 253. And Joe, you pretty much nailed it on the head there. It's He's pitting this tax cuts that the Republicans would like against his education spending. And he's already on the road today doing just that. Now, one he's thing definitely that, following that uh, model from last summer. Go on the road campaign and uh, get your message out there. And he's, uh, he's he's sticking to that game plan. And and he's calling it his good schools, good jobs plan. Now, one thing I noticed in that particular part was he mentioned specifically that he's held the line on taxes, which I think indirectly torpedoed the House Democratic plan, <laughs> which actually raises taxes on upper income people. Yeah. So. For Representative John Carpenter and, co- and company, I don't know if your bill was going to pass anyways in the Republican legislature, but I don't think the governor supports it from his words last night. So sorry about that, uh, Representative Carpenter. Yeah, I think the governor is is, is uh, cutting a, a road of his own that basically is saying no, no, no tax cuts, no way, no how. And if those are done, schools will suffer. I mean, that's his message. And, of course, the uh, it's going to be up to Speaker Tim Jones and others who are pressing for tax cuts to say that's a misleading message, that's an incorrect message, uh, tax cuts can help uh, fuel the economy and create jobs. I mean, you're going to hear this over the next 
five months. Yes, there certainly appears to be a disconnect between the governor and and the Speaker of the House on this issue. And on another issue in which these two are going to to be a disconnect (laughs) in terms of priorities is Medicaid expansion. And I believe we have another clip of the governor talking about that. Now, we all know there are problems with Obamacare and Washington's implementation of it has been abysmal. Yeah, but rejecting Medicaid won't fix any of those things. I was driving home last night when I was listening to that on the radio, and it definitely made me chuckle a little bit because the first applause was the Republicans cheering about how Obamacare has been abysmal as far Uh as implementation. The second part was Democrats saying that. Um, You know, I'm not particularly surprised that the governor talked about Medicaid in his State of the State address. He's been talking about some form of Medicaid expansion generally for – the last five or six, um, the thing that I that kind of struck me and that struck me recently is there just doesn't seem to be a lot of incentive for the legislative Republicans to pursue Medicaid expansion because they've been rejecting all forms of Medicaid res- uh, expansion since 2005, and they really haven't suffered at the ballot box. In fact, they have super majorities now. So, Joe and Marshall, do you see any? movement on this issue, considering it doesn't seem to have hurt Republicans over the last few years? Uh, no, I, I don't. I, I don't see Medicaid expansion going anywhere, even the uh, uh, even the expansion light, if you want to call it that, that uh, Representative Barnes has been championing for the past two sessions um, that, that would tie some type of, uh, you know, uh, private uh, enterprise uh, uh, provision of of health coverage to Medicaid um, uh, clients and use that as uh, those types of market reforms combined with a smaller expansion. Uh, that's probably not going to go anywhere either. Um, as I've said before, I think the only thing that might change the conversation will be if some rural hospitals start closing because of the end of the federal special payments that they now get for covering uninsured low-income people. And those payments are supposed to go away because of Medicaid expansion. Now, the governor's budget um, stipulates that Missouri would get $1.7 billion if the expansion were to go in place. Uh, They're assuming mid-year. And uh, the governor and his staff say that close to 300,000 people would be added to the state's Medicaid rolls if that would happen. And so I think uh, he is trying to make the case that there's just so much money on the table that's now going to other states. In his speech, he made several references to Missouri tax dollars now going to other states. And, in fact, the budget, the, the numbers are in dispute, but between $77 million and $97 million of the money that's in the budget that is state money, uh, his office is contending could be covered under the Medicaid expansion, so that would save the state money. So they're telling the legislature that if you don't expand Medicaid, that means between 77 and 97 million would need to be cut from the budget the governor proposed if they don't do Medicaid expansion. Now, I just got to point this out just to play devil's advocate. A lot of Republicans are pushing back at the argument that rejecting Medicaid expansion is sending money to, quote, other states. They're saying that that argument doesn't really meet logical um, – doesn't really make logical sense in, in many respects. Did you guys hear kind of that pushback? I mean, I saw it on Twitter, but did you guys hear that 
firsthand. Not not that I didn't hear it firsthand. I I, I suspect though that that's uh, we might start hearing that uh, going forward. The listening to the Republican response uh, that uh, Tim Jones gave last night, he seemed to indicate that uh, the the best way to provide health care access is to place caps on medical malpractice damages and. Yeah, he he said that doing that would direct more money towards patients and toward research and toward care and less money toward uh, you know legal battles and that was the, the that was the better way to try to expand healthcare access. Well, and he was attacking against what he called the expansion of the welfare state. He made some comment about freeloaders, so I think uh, they're trying to frame it in a different way. That basically, if people want healthcare, they need to get a job that provides it. Now, I've been hearing a lot about some of the business groups actually ramping up to try to push back against some of this, even though the business groups are aligned with Republicans on many issues, there is starting to be some peel off on the Medicaid issue because they're seeing what's happening in other states. Now, whether or not that's just talk or if we're going to see something happen in the next few months as far as ads or something like that, I don't know. But that's just some of the behind the scenes talk. And this might be a little off to the side, but I think it fits in that um, the uh, the Republican response uh, message was a good opportunity for Tim Jones to try to practice for you know statewide um, contests coming up in the next um, you know two years, uh, whether he runs for attorney general as a lot of people think he will, or maybe right. he decides, hey, maybe Secretary of State instead. Who at this point, I, I think a lot of his address and a lot of uh, his. Um, content in his address uh, was to um, to sharpen his Republican credentials and conservative credentials for a statewide run. I'm sure Kurt Schaefer and Eric Schmidt are just thrilled about that. <laughs> well, they knew that, too. I think yeah. that's one of the reasons there was some haggling behind the scenes about whether or not Jones should be giving the response. Well, moving along to another topic here that does involve Governor Jay Nixon and, and actually does involve House Speaker Tim Jones, which is Missouri's lethal injection method. Um, we've talked about it on the show before, but a considerable amount of things have changed since we last discussed it. Um, late last year, we reported that we had actually found out where the state was getting its execution drug um, and that it was buying it from a compounding pharmacy located in Oklahoma that actually isn't licensed to sell in Missouri. Um, since our report aired, a lot of things have happened. Um, the auditor has announced that he will be auditing the Department of Corrections. Uh, there's a bill that has a few different sponsors that would um, hold off on executions for a year while the General Assembly can conduct an investigation. Uh, there was supposed to be a hearing yesterday, but the director of the Department of Corrections uh, announced the night before that he wouldn't be showing up. Um, and meanwhile, two state boards of pharmacy are also being asked to investigate along with the FDA and the U.S. Attorney's Office. So oh, a you, lot, you, you, a for, lot of, you forgot the most uh, high profile thing that a state representative introduced a bill to bring oh, back the yes. firing squad <clears throat> as an option, which I think we actually did. We actually think that that was a possibility on one of our shows as kind of yes. a lark. We yeah, no, I didn't see it as a lark. I think it's serious. This is this is sponsored by um, Rick the chair, Bratton. Rick Bratton, uh, and the chair and the vice chair of the corrections committee. Actually, so it's not someone who's you know not affiliated. But I, I don't see this. Bill I, I saw it as chance. a statement bill. It's a statement bill, and it's it's definitely sort of a distraction from the larger issue, which is hey, the state has been buying it from someone who isn't licensed to sell it. 
But it does go back to what you we may have predicted last year, that the response to some of your stories was not necessarily constricting the death penalty, but kind right. of expanding it or to make it more secretive. And I kind of see this kind of a statement yeah. that, you know, the Missouri legislature supports the death penalty. Absolutely. And, and that was kind of what I got from it. I know that a lot of national people like – showcased it and it's like, oh, oh look at what Missouri look is doing now. Old Missouri. Look but at, I think sometimes but, again. but I mean sometimes the legislature does this. They did this last year with with union bills and anti union bills and anti gun bills. I mean it's kind of par for the course. And and but, you're absolutely but, right on in terms of supporting the death penalty. But it's worth pointing out that the House Committee on Government Oversight chaired by Representative Jay Barnes, will be holding hearings looking into this. And it's definitely worth pointing out that House Speaker Tim Jones has said that he supports this investigation and he wants to look into it because he thinks that it's very likely that they did break the law. Go ahead, Joe. Well, well the, but there was this also what, what some consider a botched execution just a few days ago. Wasn't it Ohio? It was well, Ohio. There, there and, are actually and, two, one in Oklahoma and one in Ohio, in Oklahoma, but the one in Ohio, which ended up like taking 15 minutes. Exactly. And, uh, I mean, <clears throat> the point is whether or not it's the same drug or not, it it does kind of factor into this whole discussion, and that's why I think this talk about renewing firing squads may not be as frivolous as you gentlemen back in St. Louis may. Think. I don't think it's frivolous. I just don't think that it's anything more than kind of a statement rather yeah. than a policy goal that's actually going to be implemented because. I think if you read kind of the, the details behind the firing squad, there's only been, what, three instances in the last few decades where it's actually been used. So I don't Is really— it Utah? I think in Utah, maybe yeah. in Oklahoma. So I'm not really sure that it's seen as a viable execution option. Maybe, I, I, maybe it will now that there's problems with lethal injection, but I'm just a little skeptical. I, I would be shocked, frankly, if it, if it passed the General Assembly, and then it was actually signed by the governor. I would be shocked. He, uh, I the, think, the governor I think we would be shocked at, as well. But uh, Someone might make the argument, though, that it might be cheaper to, uh, to use a firing squad than to, um, to get the gas chamber up and running again yeah. as far as uh, from, a, from, a, from a purely economic standpoint of how much it would cost to execute um, someone. Well, let's see if Senator Nieves takes this on as an issue. I, I don't know if he wants to get handled in that, but 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 let's kind of uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to have actually a very exciting guest on our yes. show, Senator Jolie Justice of Kansas City, the Senate Minority Leader, and I've gotten to know her over the years since she's entered the legislature and watching her transition from kind of a fighting freshman legislator to one of the most respected and savvy legislators in Missouri politics has been truly a sight to behold. Not only that, she's also just a very candid and interesting person to talk to. And I'm, I'm sure she's going to have a lot to say about the state of the state, the Senate Democratic posture this year toward Republicans. And maybe we'll even get a little insight into her future plans. And we're back. I'm Chris McDaniel again, and I'm joined in St. Louis by... Jason Rosenbaum. Still Jason Rosenbaum. And Joe is in Jefferson City. Say hello, yep, Joe. Yep, still. Hi. And we've swapped out Marshall Griffin, actually, for our guest this week. Our guest this week is... Jolie Justice. State Senator Senate. from the uh, 10th Senatorial District. And she's also the Senate Minority Leader. 
Yes, that is correct. With the you know, we always ask our guests like what district they represent, and I know I, I know this one might take like three hours to explain. But could you briefly explain what your your district situation is, just to make everybody Absolutely. chuckle a little bit? Absolutely. So I was elected by the people of Kansas City, Missouri. I live and work in the city of Kansas City, Missouri. And in 2012, I was redistricted and I now represent Callaway, Audrain, Monroe, Montgomery, Warren and Lincoln counties. So I switched from uh, downtown Kansas City to six rural counties in northeast Missouri. It is uh, an interesting situation to be in, to say the least. But I think it's one that's probably working out for the best. Now, Now, you were in your second term. Correct. That's correct. So you were going to be term limited out at the end of this year? Absolutely. This is my last year. Okay. So just so people know. Absolutely. Now, you actually, I think, fit this district pretty well. You grew up in Branson to a somewhat political family. You actually do own a house in Callaway County, but pretty succinctly. Just tell me a little bit about your, your Branson roots and kind of how you got into politics. Well, I actually am um, from a somewhat now political family. It didn't start out that way, but I'm uh, the only Democrat, though, in my uh, largely Republican family. I grew up in Branson, Missouri, and my father was the elected prosecutor there for about 20 years, and now he's an elected judge. Uh, Last year, I guess two years ago now, my uncle uh, became a state rep, and so um, he is a state an elect, elected state representative from the Branson area. And who is that? His name is Jeff Justice, and uh, so we have two justices in the legislature right now. I um, really did not set out to do this. The two things I was never going to be were a lawyer or a politician, and uh, both of those ended up happening. And so uh, now I'm here at the end of what has been sort of an eight-year political experiment. I thought, you know, know, kind of was on a dare. I was asked to kind of run for office back in 2006 and was successful. And, and I've really enjoyed it and, and have really um, I'm going to miss my time here. I think it's been the greatest job I've ever had. So we've talked a little bit uh, before you joined us about the state of the state last night. We've talked a little bit about the education spending and uh, the possibility of Medicaid expansion or tax cuts. Was there anything that surprised you last night? Well, actually, I mean, to be completely honest, no, nothing surprised me because I'd had two briefings over the course of the day, and I and I was also given a copy of the speech. So nothing surprised me um, about what the governor said. It's kind but of cheating. What about, it's kind of yeah, Well, but was there anything that surprised you before you'd gotten all that or that you think your, your – um at least constituents, current or former, would be surprised by No, I mean, it, uh, yes. I mean, the answer is absolutely. I think that, that the speech that he gave last night, in my opinion, just my personal opinion, was, was the best speech that I'd heard coming from my perspective in my eight years down here. I have had um, eight now state-of-the-state addresses, two from um, Governor Blunt and six from Governor Nixon, and I've, I have not had the opportunity to hear all of the things I wanted to do, have you know heard and addressed, and I was really excited to uh, how rapidly he is moving towards fully funding education in the state of Missouri was a surprise to me. Um, I was excited to hear that he's talking about sooner rather than later. And I think that the only reason we're going to be able to get that done is because we fought off the tax cut bill from last year. I don't think we'd be able to get education funded at the, at the speed that it's going to be funded if it had been, you know, that big tax cut had gone through. I was excited to hear how strongly he spoke about Medicaid expansion and about his, his willingness to really roll up his sleeve 
leaves and get involved in the process and come up with a, a plan that's going to be good for Missouri. And then I think one of the things that, that surprised a lot of folks last night was when he brought up the Missouri Non-Discrimination Act. And uh, I don't think any governor in the state of Missouri has ever used the term LGBT. Um, and if they did, it wasn't in a proactive sort of way. It was, uh, I remember Governor Blunt, even in 2006 and seven was still talking about uh, the big marriage amendment that had been passed in 2004. And and so I think the fact that he's doing things proactively for the LGBT community is, is really impressive. Could you explain for our listeners your role in getting that bill through the Senate? Sure. Because that was an and, amazing and of, accomplishment. I mean, from well, a lot of you know, perspectives, but continue. No, I, I, it, it was quite um, quite a feat. So uh, many folks don't even know right now in Missouri it's still legal to fire someone because they're gay. And uh, one of the things that we've been trying to do for years now, and, and senators before me filed the bill as well, is pass a law that just adds sexual orientation and gender identity into the Missouri human rights statutes. So it would they would receive the same protection that other folks receive based on disability or race or religion and that sort of thing. Um, we had, over the years, received hearings here and there, but we'd never had any floor debate before. And last year, with only 15 minutes left in the legislative session, we actually passed it out of the Senate with 19 votes. At the time, there were only 10 Democrats, so we had to pick up nine Republicans. And uh, the folks who voted for it were not the nine Republicans that I think most folks would have thought. Uh, We had a lot of conservative guys um, from rural Missouri who, for a variety of different reasons, thought it was the right thing to do. And that's the reason I I kind of exclaimed it was amazing, because it wasn't, you know, the Democrats are deep in the minority in the Senate and the people that voted for that were not just moderate or, or liberal Republicans. They were very conservative ones like Rob Schaff voted for it, Wayne Wallingford of Cape Girardeau, Gary Romine. So my question is kind of what is your, your feeling about it this year? And if it, even if it makes it in past the Senate, do you think it could pass the House this year? Yes. I do think. I think that we have a very good chance of getting it passed this year. There have been some amazing conversations preliminarily that are coming out of the House. The Republican leadership, that, I mean, sorry, the Republican sponsors of this bill are pushing hard on leadership and others to make sure that it gets hearings, that they get early hearings, that we're able to have a robust debate about this on the floor. We have, uh, for the first time, I think, starting last year, there were lobbyists on board um, who were working this in a way that it had never been worked before. So we're being very strategic about getting it passed, and I think that um, all of the education that we've done over the last eight years that I've been here, I think, is finally coming to a head, and that, with everything that you see happening on the national level, um, I think will ultimately result in getting this passed. The polling that we have seen on this issue is unbelievable. The vast majority of Missourians think that this legislation should be passed, and so when you give that information to folks who've been nervous in the past it gives them the cover they need to get to get it done why do you think there's been this shift i think that's been something that's rather been stunning on a national and in a, and in the level like a state like missouri which is generally considered pretty socially conservative and there still seems to be a similar debate going on over abortion that hasn't changed as much as the perception towards um lgbt i think it's a it's a whole it's 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 a bunch of things. Uh, and I think probably the biggest issue and the one that most people can put their finger on is just more people have come out. Uh, this is something that Harvey Milk said when he first came out or first ran as the first, uh, we all think, the first openly gay elected official in this nation, which is this is going to change when people come out, when they come out to their parents and to their aldermen and to their and to their school teachers and all of these things. And then what's happened is, is then everybody knows someone who's gay. And so the reality is, is that it's hard to start um, 
discriminating against people when it is your brother and your cousin and your and your child. And so I think because of that, that has really had a big shift. And then just what we've seen on the national level, I think that as far as folks 30 and under, nobody cares anymore. They just don't care. They want to make sure that we all have the same rights. Now, I wanted to shift gears a, a little bit, in, in, but staying in the uh, state of the state. One of the things the governor didn't really talk a whole lot about was the transfer situation, which is obviously a big deal in St. Louis, but it's also going to be a big issue in your neck of the woods in Kansas City. Number one, were you kind of surprised that he didn't talk more about that in the state of the state? And number two, um, where do you see that issue going this year? Do you think that there will be consensus on that issue or do you think it's going to run into the, the similar obstacles that it has in the past? To answer your first question, I mean, he did address the issue. It obviously was just a sentence or two. Um, I think that it probably would have been difficult for him to go too much more into detail on that. He had spent a lot of time on education, and I know that there are a lot of different competing ideas right now, and he probably didn't want to go too far out on a limb supporting one over another. Um, that being said, I have spoken to most of the senators in the Kansas City and St. Louis area, and they all agree that this is the number one priority. I know out of Kansas City it is the number one priority that the business community as well as the education community want addressed. Even our, our mayor and our city council are talking about this. So I think that the Senate is going to get something done pretty quick. Uh, my fear where we're going to run into some problems is when we try to start sending things back and forth between the House and the Senate. I think we may run into a problem there, but I'm hoping that the business community and the education community will step up and say, we've got to get this done. If we can get rural Missouri on board, I think that it will be helpful. And I think the reason that rural Missouri is going to want to get on board is they're going to see how much money the state's going to have to start paying to bail out bankrupt school districts if we don't get this accomplished. And that that could arguably be out of their pocket as well as. Absolutely. Well, and I've also understood that there are a number, there are some rural school districts that may soon find themselves in a similar situation uh, as far as accreditation. I mean, is that having carrying any weight in some of this discussion or not? I think that it is starting to carry some weight. Uh, the reality is is that the first time a rural school, a truly rural school, school district comes up provisionally or unaccredited, all of a sudden I think everybody's going to understand uh, what we're talking about. But right now the monetary argument seems to have a little more traction. But once they see how these new standards are going to start sending some of the other folks into an unaccredited um, position, I think you're going to see uh, the debate heat up quite a bit. So I wanted to, again, shift gears a little bit more broadly beyond state of the state and just talk about the Senate Democratic role in this session. Now, for many people who listen to this show, I've mentioned many times that I've always thought that the Senate Democratic Caucus wields a lot of power, not only to block things, but to shape issues because of how strong the filibuster is in Missouri and in the Missouri legislature. So just generally, before we get into particular issue, what is kind of the Senate Democratic posture this year toward some of the Republican priorities like tax cuts, like right to work, um, like anything else that may be in a collision course with conflict in the Missouri Senate? 
you know, over the years, I think that um, it's pretty obvious what our position on a lot of these issues is. I can't always, um, you know, speak for all nine of us because you, even within our small caucus, we have a, a diverse group of folks. But we've driven, we've drawn a pretty big line in the sand when it comes to right to work. We're obviously opposed to it. Um, we are opposed to not all tax cuts, but we are opposed to tax cuts that are not targeted, that do not um, help, you know, real people as opposed to corporations. And we're definitely oppose the tax cuts if it's going to bankrupt a state that uh, is already struggling to meet things like funding education, building roads, and that sort of thing. So, you know, our posture is going to be this. We're going to wait and see what comes our way. We'll evaluate each um, idea as it's put in front of us. But if there's something that we think truly would be harmful to the state of Missouri, we're going to fight like heck to make sure it doesn't happen. On the flip side, there are several things that are proactive that the Republicans have put forward that they wouldn't have been able to get done without the Senate Democrats. There are still enough ultra-conservative Republicans in the chamber that they wouldn't get some things done, like the Manufacturing Jobs Act from the special session a few years back, or some of the other ideas that they've put forward. They wouldn't have gotten them done without all of our Democratic votes. So we are not only, I think, important when it comes to stopping things, but they also need our help to move a lot of moderate ideas forward. On right to work in particular, is there any possible chance that the Democrats would purposely let that go on the ballot just to gin up union turnout and union money for 2014? Or is that an issue that people are willing to fall on the sword for and just kill within the Senate? You know, I I have been a firm believer in never saying, you know, what I'm going to filibuster and what I'm not going to filibuster, because I just don't know. The reality is, is I suspect that that is one issue that we would never let get to a vote of the people. I understand that that it could help drive up uh, the Democratic vote. Um, It might also backfire on us, and that's not really a risk that we're willing to take. At this point, we have heard from our constituents and we have heard from the working folks that um, aren't and, and the organized labor folks that aren't in our districts, and they have asked us to hold the line on it and unless something you know very odd came out of the woodwork that that had us do otherwise i suspect you would see a lot of folks um, um speaking on that for an extraordinarily long time well and one of the point i'd like to make is that most of the bills that have been introduced on right to work there's only uh most of them would just put the ban into effect on closed union shops there was only one at least when I last did a story a week ago, that would put it on the ballot. That that intrigued me that most of the measures would actually make it law to bar closed closed union shops, which tells me that uh, for whatever reason, backers of the right to work effort are trying to get it put in place legislatively and are not necessarily aiming towards the ballot box either. Joe, you're correct, and that's one of the things that we've heard um, that has really slowed it down over the past few years is the fear from the supporters of right to work that actually putting it on the ballot would hurt their candidates in other elections. And so they actually don't want to go to a vote of the people on it is one of the, the rumors that we've heard over the years. Yeah, I can't foresee any scenario where right to work is on the ballot in November 2014, and for example, a Republican win that Jefferson County seat or the seat that John Lamping's in. It just seems politically unadvantageous for Republicans to have that on the ballot at the same time that they're trying to win some of these competitive elections. So, Yeah, be- because those districts, as Jason just pointed out, uh, particularly Jefferson County, have a lot of union workers, either current or retirees. Right. Or teachers. But, so we- oh. we've talked um, a fair amount of how the Senate Democrats could play defense. But 
Um, as we've mentioned before, this is your last year in the Senate. What are the issues that you really hope to tackle before you are term limited out? You know, obviously, there's a lot of things that I'd like to get done, and the list seems to get longer every day when I realize how short my time is here. I really would like to get the criminal code redone. It's something that has not been done for um, nearly 40 years now. It was mentioned in the judicial state of the state, right? It was. It was. By Mary Russell. Yeah, she brought that up today, which I was very thankful that she brought that up. I thought it was important to hear that from another branch of government and and, and frankly, from a good conservative voice. I think a lot of the, the representatives and the senators in the chamber look to her as not kind of a left-leaning member of the judiciary. And so I thought it was good that that it came from her. This is something where today, this afternoon at three o'clock, I've got my, I think, 15th hearing that I've had on this bill. This is the third year I've filed this bill. This is the 15th hearing we've had on the Senate side. It's important to get it done. It's not sexy. No one likes it. It's at this point about an 800-page bill. But but it's something that I think if we could get this done is not only going to save the state a lot of money, um, but it's also going to make it a safer place. We're going to get the right mix of folks in prison. We're going to get treatment for folks who need treatment. I, I just think it's really the way we need to go. It is a consensus document from public defenders and prosecutors. If they can get together and agree on anything, I think that it's probably worthy of us to at least try to get it to the governor's desk. So for our listeners, can you just sort of succinctly summarize what some of these revisions would be? Sure. Sum- summarize that 800-page document. Yeah, I was going to say, in, you, you've uh, asked me to succinctly seconds. summarize an 800-page bill. <laughs> um, the main thing that's in there that will be new is it actually creates a new class felony so that we actually have staggered sentencing. So that's really the biggest issue is it takes a look at um, the staggered sentencing so that prosecutors and public defenders and private defense lawyers can be more effective in their plea bargaining. And so I think that's one of the biggest issues. And then the other issue is, is we, for over 40 years now, have been passing new criminal laws, and they're just all over the place, and it's not user-friendly. The last time that a criminal code rewrite was done, the uh, then-state senator who handled it was Ike Skelton. I mean, it kind of tells you how long it's been since we've done this. And so uh, what it's going to do is it's going to make, it's going to take a, it's going to be a huge learning curve. There's going to be, you know, a whole new generation of of lawyers that are going to have to learn uh, how to speak about Class A through E felony. But the reality is, is once we get it in place, it's going to be much more user friendly. It's going to be more streamlined. It's going to be more modern. It's just something its time had come. So this is a I know that thousands and thousands of people are waiting for this next question, but you are term limited. And, you know, I think you've been linked to, you know, a Kansas City City Council race, Congress. You know, there's an open state auditors race if you're interested, like what are what are Democrats your Democrats are still trying to draft a candidate? Well, what are kind of your what are your thoughts about your your next move after you leave office as far as any offices that you're interested in? Sure. I you know, that's probably the, been the most common question that I received over like the last I think three years, which is kind of sad because, you know, I have all this time left that everyone wants to know what I'm going to do when I leave. I mean, the good news is I have a day job. I uh, have an amazing uh, law practice where I represent indigent individuals um, for my firm and head up our pro bono practice. And so I really, I'm not kidding, look forward to getting back and doing more of that sort of work. But I I have to tell you, I really have picked up a skill set here that I'd like to use elsewhere. I like the idea.
idea of going local. I am looking right now at the city council race. Um, you know, I'm just going to keep all of my, my options open. But at this point, um, I, I suspect you will continue to hear from me in, in at least local politics, what, if not and if not other. And, and I guess my parting question for you is what, what, what have been like the main lessons you've learned as a legislator over the last eight years? Because as many people know, you kind of came in untainted by the House, per se, just as a person <laughs> who came into the Senate from sure. the private sector. If you had to just succinctly tell people what your experience was over the last eight years, what would you tell them? You know, I when I came in, when I first ran for office, it was 2006. And it was a very competitive four-way primary. And the Kansas City Star, my hometown newspaper, chose another candidate to endorse. And they said the reason that, that they couldn't endorse me was because I was an ideologue, that I didn't understand the concept of compromise, and that I would just be too outspoken and not get anything done for Kansas City. When I ran for re-election in 2010, I had an opponent again. But this time, the Kansas City Star endorsed me, and they referred to me as the most effective legislator in the region. And I love to put those two, um, you know, pieces, commentary side by side, because I think what it shows is if you come down here and you are pragmatic and you approach this like a chess game, and, and in my you know opinion, I mean, I use a lot of game theory <laughs> in the process. If you learn what moves people and what motivates people, you can get things done. And so I think it's a lot about personal relationships. I think it's a lot about sticking with things. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about the Missouri Non-Discrimination Act. The reality is that a lot of those conservative senators who voted yes that day on the last day of session last year, if you look at the seating chart, they're pretty close to where I sit. It was all about personal relationships. And so I would just suggest that um, never burn a bridge and always um, make sure that you continue to work with people instead of against them, and you'll get a lot of, get a lot done. And on that note, we'll close this out here. You can read all of our stories, me, Joe, and Jason, at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at CSMcDaniel. Jason, you can be followed on Twitter at? Jay Rosenbaum. Joe, you can be followed on Twitter at? Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow the senator on Twitter at? Jolie Justice, J-O-L-I-E-J-U-S-T-U-S. Pretty easy. We'll be back next week. Thank you for joining us, Senator. Until then, so long.